I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Now, fitness crazes come and go all the time. But one that's got some legs, pardon the pun, is the weekly fun run called Park Run. Now, each weekend, every Saturday, more than 44,000 people run at 352 locations around Australia. That is rain, hail, shine, wind, no matter what. They get there on Saturdays and do this 5K run. And it's completely free for entrance every single time. So today, I'm going to be joined by Tim Oberg. Now, he's the CEO of Parkrun. He was given the first global license for Parkrun back in 2010, and it's since exploded around this country. I want to talk about how the business works, how it's been able to become such a huge success story. Why did he get into it in the first place? How did he pitch his idea into the founder guy in England, and how did he get this guy over the line to give him this license for Australia? I also talk about the really valuable data that Parkrun collects globally and here in Australia and what they're doing about it in a scientific sense. So let's get into it. Tim Oberg, welcome to The Mentor. Great to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. Oberg, is that right? Yeah, it is Swedish. Swedish. Yeah, it looks Swedish. You've got the blonde uh, hair. You're all fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's Swedish a fair way back. I think it's about yeah. 150 years ago. There some Vikings came over from, from Sweden to Australia and that's how I somehow ended up well, here, mate, here with me. Yeah. The apple doesn't drop far from the tree. You look, you definitely look like you're a, for those people listening, he's a, a blondie. Um, and which is rare. Rare. You don't see that very often these days. Um, mate, this business you're, you're involved with, so the park run, I mean, it's, I think a lot of people have heard of it. I better get you to explain what it is first. What is park run? Sure. Well, the nuts and bolts of park run is that it is a free timed, weekly five kilometer running slash walking event in parks all over Australia and actually an event. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a structured event. So there's a start line, a finish line, you get a time. Um, we, we de-emphasize the competitive nature of it. Although, you know, being real, there are a lot of competitive people that come down and try and run as fast as they can. There's no doubt about that. But for us, it's a community intervention. Uh, it's about creating something that uh, people can come down to, see their friends, make new friends, feel engaged with their local community. But it's a, it's a, it's it's actually a 
a competition run. Like, uh, I mean, but you can compete as hard as you want. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, the you know, we have Olympic athletes who come and, and do park run. I mean, the, the Australian record for park run is held by a guy called Marty Dent. Uh, he's a three-time Olympian, I think, maybe four. Sorry, Marty, if you're listening. Uh, and, and I'm sure he is. is uh, of course. And, uh, you know, his PB is 1443 at Parkrun for 5K. So, you know, he's he's absolutely moving. So I think the world Parkrun record's 1340 or something like that. So, so it's uh, look, there are a lot of people that come to run at Parkrun very fast, but the core and the bulk of the people come because it's a social event where they're engaged with their community. So how did you get involved? Like, are you an athlete or what's your history? No, no, I was uh, just explaining before you arrived, you know, I'm, I'm not a runner and I say that in, in, in inverted commas for the listeners, um, but I was living over in the UK where, where Parkrun originated. So it started there in, in 2004 uh, and I was living in the UK 2001 to 2010 and I was just over there, uh, you know, having a great time and working and, and my background uh, in university was um, human movement. So I've always had an interest in, in sport and I guess I thought my career was going to go in that way. But then when I moved to the UK, I, I started teaching and then I set up my own travel business and event company. And so it never ended up working in sport. But just, Can I just stop there? What's human movement mean? Sports science. So, and what does it mean, though? Anat- studying anatomy, physiology. Um, what does human movement mean? I know that's. I know what you were studying. Yeah. But what does human movement mean? Like, what's that the study of? Well, it's the study of the systems in the body that that make us do what we do. So, I would learn about energy systems and how they, you know, how you would use that in in training for sport and just for life. Uh, the different, you know, as I say, components of the body. It's been a while now, Mark. Yeah, it's been 20, 20 years since I've been at uni, so I hope you're not going to test me on my own. No, I'm, degree, not, but, I'm not actually, but, but I, uh, I, I'm actually curious because it, yeah. like, is, it a, is it a Bachelor of Science degree? or It's called a Bachelor of Applied Science, right. Human Movement Studies. Uh, right. Now, whether that's still what they call that degree, I'm not, I'm not too is sure. Is physiotherapist? Oh, uh, yeah, it can be, a, it can be a, a pathway into physio, yeah. and a lot of friends I went to uni with ended up going on and, and doing further study and becoming a physiotherapist. I guess really, though, back then, my thinking was I was going to do a Human Movement degree and probably go on and, and be become a personal trainer and, and have a bit, I guess it gives you a bit more of a grounding than a, than a standard personal training degree would do. So I thought I would go and work somewhere in the health and fitness industry um, and, and go from there. Because that's what I want to get to. So um, your pathway was potentially, um, in your thought process in, in those days, 20 years ago, yeah. was um, I might want to go do personal training, but I thought I would, there's you thinking, perhaps I'm going to just put, I don't want to put yeah. words in your mouth, but as you thinking about how do I become better than everybody else? who's doing the same, who's going through the same process of developing themselves a career as a, you know, as a personal trainer. So yeah, absolutely. is, was your thinking, I want to be better than everybody else? Yeah. Well, it was, it was more the, equipped, more equipped. Yeah. I mean, it was the, I guess it was the more academic pathway into that profession. So, you know, you could get a job in a gym and do your, um, your level one or your level two or whatever it you know, might've been called in terms of fitness, which I guess is something you would do through TAFE or something like that. Or there was the, you know, the more academic pathway, which was go to university, do a science degree or applied science degree in human movement studies and come out the other end with a much more, I guess, academically based qualification to, to move in. And yeah, as you say, be better than others for sure. Was the personal training wave, this, oh look, I don't remember, but was it starting around that time of 20 years ago? Yeah, look, I think it was. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I finished high school in 1995, uh, was it uni 96? Um, and I knew from a pretty early age, like I, you know, I played a lot of sport in, in high school and I knew that that was something that I was passionate about and that I enjoyed doing. And I thought if, if that can be a career, 
um, then that would be great. So I remember like even as early as sort of year 10, when I was 15, like selecting subjects for my senior years that would be the pathways into that human movement degree. So, so yeah, because well, I'm actually interested because a lot of young people when their parents listen to these things and lots of kids are interested in, interested in, um, being involved in sport because it's one of the, something they're passionate about. They'll mm. just love it. Um, and you're telling me that, at, you know, when you're in year 10, I guess, or 11, you started selecting subjects. Well, did you go to school in Sydney? No, in Brisbane. So Brisbane? I went to Nudgee College in Brisbane. Nudgee, okay. And uh, you, you had the ability oh, – look, I, I haven't been to school for – you reckon you haven't been to school for 20 years. Like, I haven't been to school for a long time. Um, when I went to school, you had to do Latin, Latin or uh, math, science, English, history, you know, that type of stuff. Sure, yeah. Um, so what sort of subjects can you select when you're in uh, year 12 or 11 that actually help this sort of course process? And by the way, whilst you're sitting, I'm, I'm, I'm going to boast, I'm eating an apple. So if anyone hears an apple crunch, that's me biting. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, there, there were, there were clear subjects that you needed as prerequisites to get into that course. And so because it was a science course, there were science type subjects. So from memory, you know, I selected uh, biology, for example, because that biology and chemistry, uh, because they were subjects that were prerequisites to get in. Of course, uh, good old HPE was a prerequisite. What, what's HPE? Uh, health, physical education, sorry. Right. So it okay. uh, was, uh, was a prereq for getting into a human movement degree. So so there were clear pathways. Um, as an example, if I'd chosen creative subjects like, um, you know, art and graphic design and things like that, that wouldn't have given me that clear pathway into a human movement degree or a science degree at, at university. So tell, tell me this. I'm actually curious. Yeah. Is it the fact that you thought to yourself that I'd like to be involved in sport and training, et cetera, and then you did those, then you did those subjects, which actually took you into that degree? Do you think it's the subjects themselves that actually got you to change, sorry, um, solidified in your mind that this is the process I'm going to go through? In other words, was it just a little thought in your head and then all of a sudden you just got buried into the subjects which were built up a momentum around where you're going to land? Or did you always, were you always just desperate to become uh, involved in sport like you are today? I think it's probably the the latter, and and you know it, I think my my sort of heroes and 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 the people that were my, my role models and that I aspired to be were the people who were already working. Who in, are they? Your role models. Well, you know, at the time in high school, it would have been my my PE teachers and 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 people uh, you know who were my, my gym coach, you know, the you know the guy who took us in the weight room, Peter Thompson, in, at at Nudgy back in those days, who who uh, sort of you know showed me my, my way around the gym when I was a young fella, and you know I guess I wanted to be like those sort of people and Is have it a job. That, and were they in, how were they influencing you though? Like uh, what what was it that influenced you? Because I mean, obviously you picked these are like mentors to you. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. didn't realise, but they were mentors to you. Were they sort of? giving a bit of a push or what? Yeah, look, and, and I think I could tell even back then that the life lessons that you learn in, in keeping fit and, and looking after yourself are life, life lessons that you can take out, outside. So I, I always loved training. I always trained really hard, even as a, a school kid, um, you know, to try and be the best that I could be. And I think I could tell that that was going to hold me in good stead, you know, as, as an adult. Uh, and I think if I, if I go back even further and I look at my father, um, you know, he, he was uh, a runner in the days when running wasn't a thing. You know, so he's in his uh, 80s now, actually, uh, and he tells me stories that he would he would be you know going for a jog. He lived in here in Sydney for a while. He'd be out going for a jog, and cars would stop, and they'd say, "What are you doing, mate? You can get in a car. You don't need to run." Uh, because you know there was a running boom, I think, in the sort of 70s, and so. But before that, no one went running unless you were maybe training, you know, running to be fit for to play footy or something like that. But no one actually ran just for the sake of running. And and so as a kid, I remember my dad was always putting on his running shoes 
going out running and he was known as the kind of running guy in the neighborhood. And, and I think I always sort of looked up to that and that really sort of sent me in that direction of thinking, okay, I want to be maybe not necessarily a runner like my dad, but uh, you know, it, it, it showed me the value of, of being fit and having that discipline. So, like, so are we talking about though, um, you trying to, it seems like this is not the case, but you trying to make the best of your natural talent as an athlete, or are we talking about an intellectual decision that you made that this is going to be not about athleticism, but it's going to be about adopting a lifestyle and a career that sort of merge together. Cause I mean, that's a pretty mature thought process to have when you're 18, 19 years of age. I mean, I didn't have it. And yeah. by the way, your dad might have run. I was one of those runners. Yeah. And my, and when I was running, we ran in a Slassinger shoes, yeah. sand, sand shoes. And, uh, we used to put a, me and a mate of mine, we'd go out on Friday night and we'd get absolutely fucking hacked. And, uh, then we'd wake up Saturday morning and about lunchtime, we put a backpack on, fill it full of sand in the middle of summer. We had, we made sure it was the hottest part of the day, put yeah. our slashingers on yeah. and we would run from his place to Covelli to the Harbour Bridge and back. And the more sick we could vomit, if we vomited, <laughs> we were happy. And that was the mental way we used to train in those days. Yeah. Um, thank God I, I didn't injure myself too badly. Um, and th that was a madness in those days. Yeah, sure. So, but I want to get back to that other question because yeah, yeah, you yeah. made me think about myself when I was around that age. <laughs> um, so you're, and, and for me, by the way, it wasn't about health and fitness. For me, it was about bashing myself up. Yeah, right. But, so training then for me was how tough could I be after I could beat myself up? Like how dehydrated could I get? Um, how far could I push myself? How could I compete against my mate who these days, unfortunately has passed away, but how could I beat him? Yep. Et cetera. It was never intellectual, like you're saying. I mean, and, and maybe you, you're more representative of a younger, a new generation of people who yeah. are thinking about how can I be healthy and have a good lifestyle and turn that into a business and a career and live my life. I mean, was that a process? I mean, is that a, we talking about a new wave of thinking? Well, look, I, I, it definitely wasn't um, what you were saying in terms of how can I bash myself up? You know, that was never my, my motivation. I think, I think like probably a lot of teenage boys who played a lot of sport, you, you went through a period where you thought, I'm going to be a sportsman, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm playing all these sports. I'm pretty good at them. Something's going to stick here and I'm going to go and have this, you know, professional sporting career. But I probably realized when I was, you know, 16 that that just wasn't going to happen. I, I just didn't have, I, I wasn't that good, you know. Who, who talked to you about Because I, I never even thought about this shit when I was <laughs> But who spoke to you? Like, I mean, I'm serious. Like, because I mean, yeah. I think cool. Did someone, yeah. I mean, or is it just something you, it's a talent you have? Or like, you know, because people listening to this and they're thinking about their kids, um, maybe parents talk to you. I mean, what happened? I mean, who was the influencer in your life? Was it your dad, your mum, your school teacher, your PE teacher? Was it, or were or you naturally that way and you just thought it through? Yeah, look, uh, I don't think there was any one person, you know, I don't, I don't there was no, um, moment where there was a conversation that sort of sent me off in a certain direction or, or anything like that. I think it was, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the, the, the high school I went to was a, a very, very strong sporting high school. So yeah, I know the nudgy, yeah. Yeah. So straight away, straight away, there was, it was just in the blood, uh, you yeah. know, every, everyone playing sport, playing sport at competitive levels. Did the school make you that way or did you go to that school because that's the way the school was? Oh, look, I went to the school because, um, my dad went to the school. I lived close to the school. Right. I had friends going to the school, but I also, you know, I loved sport anyway. Right. Um, but going to the school made me better at it's a rugby school, isn't it? Rugby school. Yeah. yeah. Rugby so, school. so I played rugby, I played basketball, I ran cross country, you know, anything that was going, I had to go at it. 
Um, and you know, so there were, there were guys around me though, who started to go to that next level, which was to get picked in representative teams and things like that. Uh, and that was not me. Uh, so, so I knew that that wasn't going to be a pathway. So you didn't say, you're saying to me here that it wasn't because you had this sort of natural athletic talent. No, no, no. That that catapulted you to the first 15 and the best and fairest or whatever they call it these days. But it was more about, so it was more an intellectual decision. It was a decision you actually made intellectually. Yeah, look, I I think that's it. You know, I I sort of thought to myself, you know, as I say, quite early on, this is something I love doing. What are the career pathways that are associated with that? Where can I go with it? And it all, all, all the roads led towards a human movement degree. Um, now I, I tacked on an education degree as well. I come from a family of teachers. My mum's a teacher, my dad's a teacher, my brother's a teacher. Uh, felt like a natural thing to do to do a, a teaching degree as well. Um, and, and interestingly, when I, when I left university, I didn't actually go down that sports stream. I went into the, the teaching stream because that was, to be honest, it probably was easier at the time. It was just, there were jobs available. I could walk straight into a job. And, and did you teach in the UK? Yeah, so I taught I taught in Brisbane for six months. I actually um, I volunteered down here in Sydney actually at the Olympics, and and I was talking before you arrived about what a great time that was. I was out jogging in Darling Harbour this morning, and every time I go down there, it reminds me of the Sydney Olympics and all the mischief we all got up to down around Darling Harbour and whatnot. I volunteered in the in the weightlifting uh, at the at the Olympics, and um, I went to the weightlifting Olympics. Oh, right there, well I was there. I was loading the weights on and off the bar. Um, so that was you know that was just an awesome time. Anyone who was in Sydney at that time would know what a life kind of changing. A couple couple of weeks that was. Um, so I, I worked in Brisbane for, um, for six months and then I made the decision to, to go overseas. Uh, you know, there were, there were teaching agencies that came and spoke to us at university and said, come work, come work in, in London, you'll earn a hundred pounds a day. And we all got our calculators out and went, that's 250 bucks. And, 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 uh, a group of us, uh, went over, I went over with some friends from school and I think uh, within about 18 months of me moving to London, which was in 2001, there was something like 20 blokes I went to school with were all over there as well because we'd all kind of finished uni at the same time and we were all looking to have a bit of fun and see the world and, and, and whatnot. So, yeah, so I ended up teaching in, in the UK for uh, for about a year and then I, you know, every, every sort of second weekend you're travelling to Europe, you know, 50-pound flights to Europe. So in the second year that I was there, I thought, well, I don't I don't really want to keep this teaching up. It's I just want to travel. I want to have fun. So I... um. I did some training to become a tour guide. Uh, so I thought I'm going to be a European tour guide and get paid to do what I'm doing every weekend anyway. Uh, and so I, so I did some t- uh, tour guide training where I was taken around Europe on a bus and, you know, you learn the sights and, and, and whatnot. Uh, and then I started working for some, some companies in London that were taking tours. And then not long after that, I thought, well, I can do this myself. And so I, um, I set up my own, my own travel business. Uh, mainly taking uh, Aussies and Kiwis and Americans and Canadians to Europe for little weekend breaks. And that was really, I guess, where the start of the sort of entrepreneurial streak in me came was, was really getting that up and running. And, and uh, I think uh, about a year after starting doing that, I was able to give up the teaching altogether uh, and just run this business full time. And it was your business? Yeah, yeah. It was called, you know, life was called Tim the Tour Man. Uh, so it was, uh, if you remember back early two thousands, yeah, home do. improvement was a yeah. big show on the telly. And I, I just got nicknamed, someone nicknamed me, Tim, the tour man on one of these tour, tour buses that I was doing. And I ended up calling the business, Tim, the tour man. And, uh, so it, it sort of became quite legendary in, in London in the early two thousands amongst the sort of Antipodean community, because we'd be, um, every weekend I was taking people to, you know, Paris or Rome or Scandinavia or or, or where it might be. And, um, we ended up taking trips over to New York and, um, yeah, it became, it became pretty big. 
uh, with the tours, and then we'd also do events in and around London. Uh, I think the the claim, our claim to fame is uh, that at one point my company held the world record for the the Guinness World Record for the largest ever pub crawl. Uh, it was something like two hundred. Uh, 2,700 people going around about 40 pubs in London over, over a day. Um, so that was, that was, a yeah, that was probably the claim to fame, but yes, yeah, a lot of far cry from what I do these days. That's when, for sure. when, when was, do you tell me what I would like to know then what was your first interaction with park run? Yeah. So it was in the UK, I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was. So I, um, well, I had an opportunity, uh, to move down to Montenegro, which was, uh, ex Yugoslavia. Through my, my now wife was working for a, a, a family who was so, who had some friends who were big property developers in, in, in Yugoslavia and they said, do you want to go down there and look at some tourism opportunities? So we moved down there for six months. And That's pretty out there because like- It was, yeah. We're talking about, uh, well, there, there was the Bosnia-Serbia war yeah. and Montenegro split from, well, Yugoslavia was split up and Montenegro yep. became a country. That's for it. For those people who don't know, it just sits below Croatia. And uh, it's a pretty odd place, and so not many people go to Montenegro, even today, I would say. Um, you get you get smart tourists, but um, it's a beautiful area. It's beautiful. The sea's beautiful. It's right on the coast. But, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd say it only been probably over the last 10 years that it's even started to get greater hotels. Yeah, well that's, and, and that's exactly right. So I was there in 2007. Um, the previous year was when um, Serbia and Montenegro had split. So they were uh, after the after the civil war down there. The Serbia uh, Serbia Montenegro was one country. Uh, Croatia became a country. Slovenia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so Mont- Montenegro split, um, and and therefore it opened itself up to foreign investment. Um, that's how these British guys who who I knew got involved, and then they sent me down there to look at what were the you know, tourism prospects, basically, you know, based on my experience from the UK with running tours and events, they said, you can go down and check it out. So we were there for six months and, um, and that's when I was, I guess you could sort of say I became, uh, uh, interested, a bit more interested in running because I, I was there and I had a bit of time on my hands and I lived in this beautiful town called Kotor, um, on a fjord and there was just, you know, kilometers and kilometers of, of beautiful trail and path, uh, to run, um, you know, in the sort of foothills and the mountains and, and whatnot. So I said to I said to Nikki, who's uh, uh, well, you know my now wife. I said I'm going to do a marathon. That was my thing. I'm going to train for a marathon. So I um, the Munich. I ended up training in, for the Munich marathon. Um, and so I had uh, about three or four months. And when we were there, um, and this story will make sense in a bit. But when I was there, we we adopted this dog uh, who was living on the streets, and 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 uh, we we named him Clarence. And every morning when I would get up at, you know, 5 a.m. or 4.30 in the morning I'd to go for, go for a run, this dog would come with me. And he would, uh, you know, I didn't have him on a lead or anything, but he'd be waiting at our steps and he'd walk out the front of the town with me. It was this uh, beautiful kind of fortified medieval town, walk out to the bay and, and he would run with me and probably, you know, f- three or four K in, he'd, he'd get tired and, he'd, and, he'd, and uh, I'd run off and I might have been doing, say, 15 K or 20 K or whatever it might be. And I'd come back and he'd be waiting for me in the same spot. And he'd, he'd run me back into the town. And, and this was our routine for, for six months while I trained for this marathon. So we, uh, we ended up adopting Clarence and, uh, and taking him back to the UK at the end of uh, the stint in Montenegro. And I got involved with, um, because I'd done a marathon, I thought, you know, you, you go, okay, I'm going to do another one. And so I did a, a, another marathon and, and then I got involved in triathlon. I did a half Ironman triathlon in Monaco, which in my, was kind of like the highlight of my triathlon career. Um, and then... One day, someone from the triathlon club said to me, you know how you're always out running with your dog? Well, there's a place you can go and run with your dog and get a time, and it's called Park Run. 
Uh, and so this is 2010 now. So this is a few years later and I was kind of, uh, every, every time I went running in the, in, in London, I would take the, take Clarence on the lead. And so I was the, 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 the dog running guy basically. And so, yeah, someone just said to me, you can take your dog to this thing called park run. So that, that sparked my interest. Um, my nearest park run, I had a look on the, on the website. The nearest park run was in Wimbledon Common. I was living in, um, Fulham, which is just sort of around the corner from, uh, Wimbledon. Uh, and, and up we went to, um, to Wimbledon Common Park Run and I did my first one in July, 2010. So at that point, Park Run had been going for almost six years. Um, when you register with Park Run, you get your, your, your athlete number. And I was like 84,155. So there, there was already 80,000 people who were doing Park Run in the UK. So it was already pretty big. I think there was about 60 locations around the UK when I started. Um, and so, yeah, went along to the first one, went back, I don't know, maybe a month later. And at this point, I'd been, you know, I'd been doing this travel stuff, these events and, and whatever, and had an absolute ball doing it. You know, it was pretty successful. I was able to buy a, a flat in London, which I've still got over there now, um, and had a great time. So I got sort of was getting paid to do what everyone else was paying to do, which was travel and, and you know, have adventures. But I'd had enough of it. And, and I said to Nikki, I said, well, when we, we were engaged at that point and we were making a plan to leave London, we were getting married in her home country of South Africa and then moving back to Australia. And I said, when... When we move back to Australia, I don't want to do travel anymore. I don't want to do events. I just want to get back to what my original passion was, which was sport, fitness, whatever that's going to look like. And I, and I, and I didn't know what, what I was going to do. I didn't know specifically what I was going to do. But um, when I found Parkrun in the UK, I thought, this is great. And I had a look at the website and it was only in the UK and there was a couple of events in Denmark as well. So it had sort of, you know, there was a, an inkling of growing out of the UK. So... So I sent a message to Parkrun just through the website um, and the founder, Paul Sinton Hewitt, um, got back to me pretty quickly and we arranged to meet up and have a coffee. Uh, and I'll never forget it. We met at uh, Costa in uh, Wimbledon Village uh, and um, we, had a great, we had a great chat. We probably spoke for a couple of hours uh, about you know, his vision and, and where, where I guess my background and wh- how I thought I could be the guy to take Parkrun to Australia. And, um, we met up again, maybe a month later and he said, let's do it. And so Paul, you know, he took a pretty big punt on me. Like he didn't know me, uh, you know, he didn't know me from park run. I'd only done a couple of park runs. Um, but we just connected, I think in the, in those first couple of meetings. Um, and yeah, he, he decided that we would, we would take the, the, the giant leap out of the UK and, and out of the Northern hemisphere and, uh, and, and facilitate me bringing park run to Australia. Well, what was Okay, I mean, you go, what was it though that you think that convinced him? Why did he take a punt on you? Yeah, it's uh, you'd probably have to ask Paul that question, but I mean, I think it was a there was a combination of I guess my, my I think my skills and attributes that I that I put in front of him. So there was the 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 academic background of sport, you know, so I could show that I this was something I was passionate about. But then there was the the work experience, I guess, of of almost ten years in London running events. So it was that combination of sport plus events. Plus we just got on. Like he's a great guy and, and, and we, we just got on really well. His mum's uh, Australian, so we had a, a link straight away. Um, yeah, he, he, he runs with his dogs. I run with my dogs. You know, so there, was, there were a lot of connections there where we just had common ground. And, and I think you know, when he explained his vision and I explained you know, how, what I thought the vision for Parkrun as well could look like, yeah, it was just it was similar. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty bold – when I think back about it, it was a pretty bold decision by Paul to do it because yeah, he, he didn't know me very well. Um, and to, to take, you know, this thing that was his baby to the other side of the planet where I could have been anyone and done anything with it. 
um, was was a pretty pretty big step. So oh, well, I'm going to go to the break, but I want to come back and talk to you about it because I actually don't think he did take a big punt, and and clearly it's worked out. But I don't think he did take a big punt. And I want to talk to you about, and so I want our listeners to hear this too. You know, sometimes it's all about the pitch and what is your pitching, and you obviously pitched something to him, and you it was all, all obviously good timing, etc. But let's put those things aside because there's always good timing and there's always bad timing. But I want to talk to you about the pitch. You've done something. You've pitched something to this guy based on what you developed yourself over a period of time, which we've just, I've just sort of dragged out of you, you know, like your passion and your ability, your intellectual ability in terms of or your knowledge around your degree, et cetera, your ability to teach, your ability to run events. Um, it, and it's, as I said, it's all about timing and pitch. So I want to come back after the break and talk about how important is the pitch. And I want to know how you thought about it and did you have further sort of uh, upgrades to the pitch? In other words, it just wasn't one conversation. I want to know how you how you um, push forward and how you followed up after your, your meeting in Wimbledon, wherever it was, where you had to, sat down and had your coffee. Because I guarantee it's not just about you just went and talked to him and basically said, yeah, good idea, let's take a punt. Let's go to the break and we'll come back. Hey, Matt, as usual, uh, you're here to highlight one of mentor.businesses businesses that are for sale. And uh, what do you got for me this week, mate? Mark, I've got a, uh, I've got a business here that it's, it's a, a bit of a gem. It's a, uh, a software company, something different. We don't normally venture into this space. Software company, big turnover, over $10 million, um, husband and wife team, and, and they're looking to, um, to exit. Do you have to be a, like a technologist to own it, I guess? I mean, otherwise you don't understand what's going on. No, not really. I mean, uh, certainly there, there's a good team in, in place, so they'll actually help you through the process. And even the owners will stay there for up to 12 months and help help the transition. But it could also be a good bolt-on for an existing operation. We're talking about a $10 million turnover. So you know, if you bolt this into your business, if you've already got five or six million, you know, you, you've got a, a really good business. Starting to get some scale. Yeah. So how long have they been in this business for? Over 10 years. Over 10 years? Yep. And are they like uh, IT experts? Is that how it works? Do they start off as IT experts? Look, not the owners, but certainly they've got some IT um, skills and experts within the business. So that's why it's transferable. That's why anybody could literally step into this. As long as you've got some type of sales background, this is a great business. So I guess they've got contracts with other with clients and customers, like ongoing business. Yeah, absolutely. So Microsoft and people like that, they're, they're actually providers of that of that software. They also do the – it's a bit of a hybrid business, really, when you think about it, because I looked at it, and it's not just about software. It's about, you know, cloud storage and all sorts of things. So it's a really, you know, diverse business. I know I must get you excited because um, apart from you being a, a, an expert in selling businesses and, be, and running our broker business – you love dabbling in software and you love all that stuff. Um, you would have got all uh, sort of horned up and excited. Um, so if you think it's a good business, that's not a bad, that's not a bad recommendation from my point of view. And um, so anybody out there listening, like if this, you think this is a perfect bolt-on or you think this is something you want to venture into, give us a call, come and talk to us, come to our website, mentor.business, and talk to Matt. We'd love to help you out. And if you've got something you want to sell or if you buy the way, if you're trying to buy, come look at mentor.business and you'll find something there that'll suit you. Thanks, Matt. Talk to you next week, mate. Thanks, Mark. Well, I'm back with Tim Oberg, and he's from Park Run, or at least the Australian Park Run, which is, forms part of a, a, a world-based 
park run and we've been talking to him about his sort of passions and all the stuff that built him up into the position to make a pitch to somebody who was the who was the owner. Was he the owner of Parkrun or the the founder of it? The founder, yeah. Yeah. So um and I, I actually will we'll come we'll come into like what the structure of Park Run is in a minute. But I for people listening to this, often we build up over a maybe a ten year period a CV. Not necessarily a CV in writing, but just a CV like a deep and wide set of variables that um, put us in a position experientially and also intellectually and not knowledge base, et cetera. Um, and we see an opportunity and some people take the opportunity, some people don't. But when you take the opportunity, there is also execution around the opportunity. You've got to execute it well. And I'm really just talking about a pitch. You know, the pitch could be someone's got a great idea, but the great idea is based on a whole lot of experience over a 10 year period, 20 year period, whatever and a whole lot of education and uh, skills, et cetera, being accumulated. And you pitch the idea maybe to someone who's going to fund it or pitch it to the bank to borrow money or you pitch it to you know, potential shareholders. In your case, you pitched something to – what's his name? Paul Sinton Hewitt. Paul Sinton Hewitt. Sinton Hewitt. Sinton Hewitt. Yeah, just PSH for short. So yeah, okay, PSH. He'll be listening, so. So well, you, you pitched something to this guy, and, I, and then you, you modestly said, oh, well, you know, he took a punt on me. I don't, to be honest with you, I don't really believe that. Um, yeah, I just don't believe that. So mm. I'm not saying you're lying. I'm just saying you're being modest. Um, so I'd like to go through a few things with you. Mm-hmm. When was it you decided and what were the circumstances around which you decided you're going to tell him about yourself and that you're going to say, why don't we put one of these in Australia? Yeah, so look, it would have been about uh, September 20, 2010. Uh, so it was a couple of months after I'd had my first experience with Parkrun and about four months before I knew I was leaving the UK. So time, time was of the essence. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we met up and as I met up. No, no, I don't want to talk about that. Mm. I'm not really interested in the meeting up as yeah. such. I want to know what your thought processes were mm. and how it converged into, I'm going to make a pitch to this guy. I'm going to, I'm going to chase him up. I'm going to ring him up. I'm going to find out who he is. I'm going to talk to him. Yeah. What did you think to yourself? Well, my, th- you know, as I mentioned earlier, I knew that I, I wanted to get out of, the travel and events and all that. And I wanted to do something that I was passionate about. That was driving you? That was, that was driving me. And, and, and I could see, you know, I didn't have a running background and, and I could see the, th- the, the I think what was going to sell Park Run outside of the UK was that in fact, not so much about the run itself. You know, this was a community. So I had to go in there to talk to Paul about not the fact that I wanted to get lots of runners together to run very fast, but that I wanted to create you know, so the, something in Australia that was going to bring be- people together. Is that something you wanted to do or you, that's something you knew he wanted to do? Well, a bit of both. I mean, I think I could I could see that that was what was going to work. You know, my personal motivation was that I thought this was going to be something that I could bring to Australia to help rebuild my professional network. So I'd been out in, you know, I'd been out of Australia for 10 years. So, so you thought this would be a good audience for you? Yeah, I thought this would be a good way for me to connect with people in an industry that I wanted to work in. So build so, a marketplace. Yeah. So I, ne- I never thought Parkrun itself was going to be a job for me. Okay. So the, um, the, 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 cause this is important stuff. So, yeah. I mean, like if you're going to, if you want to sell your skill, yep. you've got to build a marketplace. Yeah. So you thought, oh, hang on, here's a way of building a marketplace. Here's a tool. And the Absolutely. tool is called Parkrun. Mm-hmm. And it's a, and uh, there's obviously a lot of stuff that goes around. There's probably software and there's websites mm. and there's a whole lot of marketing material and a whole lot of money being spent and history and acceptance and you thought, well, that's not a bad tool for me to build a marketplace for me, you, that's you mm. speaking, mm-hmm. um, back here in Australia. Um, so, you know, these are pretty definite, purposeful 
thoughts. Um, so did you go through those definite purposeful thoughts? I mean, you might not have called it a marketplace, but it doesn't matter what you what name you put to it. Did you go through those things and sort of say, now I'm going to I'm going to find the dude who runs this, who owns this, who is oh, the founder? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's I mean, how did you find him? Yeah, just just through email. So I just sent an email to Paul. Uh, how did you know, know it was Paul? Well, I looked. So the, the website at that point had a you know about us section uh, as to who, yep. who Paul was, who the founder was. Um, so I emailed Park Run through. What did you say in the email? Yeah, it was look short and sharp. Uh, you know, my name, my name's Tim. I'm, this is my background. Uh, so I explained a bit about my background and that I was returning to Australia in six months, and I was interested to see whether Parkrun wanted to expand outside of the UK. So it was pretty simple, pretty pretty short and sharp. Yeah. Uh, but really, it was about the that human connection I had with Paul when it, when I met with him. So there's obviously your, your CV no, on no, paper. Don't don't go on too fast. Slow yeah. down. So you've sent the email, mm-hmm. short and sharp, mm-hmm. but you don't think that's the thing that sold him. But you've got his curiosity. Yeah, and look, he would have received lots of emails from people like me at yeah. that time. You reckon? Yeah, yeah, to go to different countries, and uh, you know, you know, I live in America or I live wherever, um, and so yeah, I was just the one, one of the ones potentially from Did Australia. Did you background him? Did you profile him? Do you know anything about him? Do you know he no, had one didn't, parent I Australian? Didn't, no, I didn't no. at all. No, and you know, in those days, there was no sort of LinkedIn or, or anything where you could you know check up someone's professional background. You would today, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so, 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 you, so you've so you've done, you've done your little quick little you threw your bait out. You know, you threw your lure out and you just, and he bit, um, which is sort of a bit of luck in that regard, time, his time and your timing coming together. Yep. And then he said, let's have a coffee. Yep. What did you say? Let's have a coffee. No, he did. He said, let's have a yep. coffee. Okay. And what did you jump straight on it? Oh, I think yeah, it was pretty quick. It was probably a week later that yep. we, that we met up and, you know, I thought about in my mind what, what I was going to talk to him about and what the, what I thought the vision would be. And I know certainly a lot of it was around, you know, how, how would we grow this thing? Can I just go back a step though? Mm-hmm. Like the guy sent you a reply email, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How often after you sent the email, how often did you look at your email and see where well, this guy reply back back to me? What was what was going on? Yeah, look, it was it was pretty quick. I mean, I, I messaged him and, and didn't necessarily think I was even gonna get a reply. How'd you uh, get to him? Through Facebook? But no, just through no the Parkrun website. A, so a, park, right. the Parkrun website, contact us, sending him an sending him an email. Yep. Um Paul Paul replied. How you know, quickly? Oh, quick, you know, a week, I would say. He came back to you a week later. Yeah, I would say so. And yeah. how often did you check did he had he come back? Oh, well, every day, you know, be checking, be checking. And the moment he come back to you, what happened? Yeah. So, I mean, I got straight back to him and said, How yeah, let's, quickly? Yes, quick, <laughs> very quickly. Like so, straight away? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, because well, you're, you're a teacher. I'm yeah. trying to instruct people listening here. Yeah, right? no, absolutely. So, you, you know, this is something, fast. this worked, okay? So, yeah. I want to know how quickly you nailed it because yeah, you yeah, got to no. close the deal. You don't no, fuck around. No, there was urgency. Close the deal. Close the deal. Yeah, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. this to everyone. Close. The, the art of selling, in this case, you're selling a concept, an idea, is fucking closing it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and a lot of people fuck around. They, they stuff around. They don't, oh, you know, they go and talk to their wife and they talk to their brother and their husband, their dad and their mum. You know, just the, it's there begging to be closed. The close is, I'm going to meet you. That's the first yes, close. absolutely. There's no, a series no. of closes. That's the first close. Yeah, I'm there. Where do you want to meet? What time? Exactly. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's exactly how it happened. It was probably 72 hours uh, from when I first, when he, he said, let's meet. And we probably met two or three days later. Yeah, and so then, it, uh, all, it all happened quickly. And what did you do in the prep between... Did you write notes the night before or the days before? Did you start to sort of set yeah, things yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I had a, a plan as to how I thought this could work in Australia. So I, I'd had my experiences with Parkrun in the UK. So, you know, I, I could talk a little bit firsthand about, you know, what I thought was going on at Parkrun and what I could see. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I could see that the core here was not about the 17 minute runners, the core here was the mums and dads and the people like myself running with the dog, mm. you know, so that was it. It was a community, community event as opposed to a running event. 
because uh, you know we've all we can you can picture a running event in your head and everyone's got their watches and fancy clothes on and whatnot. But park run wasn't like that. It was just people having a crack and going for coffee afterwards, which was to be honest the most important part was the social the social part afterwards. So I could see in in meeting with Paul that that was the focus. So yeah. did you? Okay, so did, when you met with Paul, did you open up your opening address? Um, was let him know that you knew what Park Run was about? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I told him that I'd, I'd been a few times and about my experiences and, as I say, running with the dog and we connected straight away with that because Paul himself well, was... Well, I want to go back. And that's an important point. Yeah. That's an important point. Um, you maybe not have done this, um, um, you know, with with a view to actually doing this, but you might have just done this naturally. Yeah. But you said there was a connection from the beginning. Yeah. You've got to lay a platform. Mm-hmm. you go got to meet somebody. You want them to, you want to win them over. You want to win them with your idea. So what you could do is build a connection. You can't walk in and say, listen, I think your business is shit. I can do better. Or you can't walk, you've got to walk in and say, I understand what your business is about. This is your business and lay it out in front of them. Yep. Hoping for them to say, yeah, yeah, I, that resonates with me. Mm-hmm. This guy gets me. And you're trying to build a relationship. Yep. This is your pitch. So what did you say to him? I, I said that I thought the real the real growth opportunities with Parkrun was was going to come through getting corporations involved who were going to support it, you know, which is the sponsorship, which is the angle that we have now, and really focusing on that sort of corporate social responsibility angle. We we talked a lot about that and about the way what Parkrun w- was doing was something that would really fulfil, uh, I guess, that CSR um, need for for businesses and 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 also the way governments could support you it. Explain what CSR means to everybody. Well, it's 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 companies investing something that's doing good, really. Yeah. So you know, good for the community. Just so, so people know, companies put a budget aside. Yeah. Bigger companies, particularly, a budget of amount of money they've got to put, spend every year on CSR, mm. and that's more community focused yep. style. Doing good. Yeah, doing good. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, but actually, banks and all they set money aside for mm. this. So you, so how did you know about that? Yeah, I guess I'd, I'd probably just come across it in my in my time in the UK. It was, it was probably something that was starting to get a bit more, you know, media coverage uh, around what what companies were doing, investing back into communities and so on. Uh, and so I think you know when I started going down that angle with the conversation with Paul, uh, I think that resonated. Uh, I think he could see that I'd thought about it, and that I think he also agreed that that was the way forward um, at the time in in the UK. Parkrun had a, a couple of commercial partners. Uh, so they were already, you know, working in that sort of CSR space. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, the fact that I, I brought that up and saw that as a, a, you know, a good vehicle for Parkrun in Australia, I think he sort of thought, yeah, okay, this guy knows knows what he's on about and is heading in the same direction that he wanted to head. Yeah. So you build up an alliance between you and him straight mm. away. Yes. Um, is, I mean, are you, are you naturally purposefully like that or is it just a, in other words, what I mean by purposely, do you sit down ruthlessly? Because I think ruthlessness is important in business, but intellectually ruth, intellectual ruthlessness, I mean. I don't mean being an arsehole. Um, but think about things and consciously make decisions about how you're going to go about something and then prosecute it that way. Or is it just a natural thing in you that you just talk that way to people and you sort of develop it as you go? In other words, did you sit down and say, these are the things I need to hit on. I need to hit on corporations, CSR obligations and, and all their community mindedness. I need to hit on um, the fact that, uh, you know, Australia needs this sort of community style running events. I need to hit on the event that there's, uh, the fact that there's lots of parks in Australia and families who have dogs and people love dogs in Australia and we love to take our dogs for a run. We love to 
you know, join our friends and families for a coffee after it? Or did it all naturally happen? Is that just your natural flow of conversation? Yeah, look, I think it was a bit of both, if, I, if I'm honest. You know, it, it wasn't as as ruthlessly planned as, as you know, you said there. So there was, uh, it was an evolving conversation. So I had some ideas, you know, talking about, for example, the CSR and whatnot. Obviously, Paul brought his ideas as well. And then that evolved into a joint vision. Uh, and I think really the most important thing that Paul and I walked away with after that first meeting was that we could see we shared a similar vision and similar values. You know, he, what I wanted and, and, and what, I, what, I, what I wanted for Parkrun and what I wanted for myself was similar to what he wanted to, for Parkrun and for himself. And I think that's where we connected in. And I think when you've, got, when, you've, when, you, when you've got a relationship and you've got those shared values that you can identify straight away, then it's, um, you know, a bit of a marriage made in heaven. And, and, you know, Paul's become a great friend of mine over the years and is still heavily involved. And so I think those, those values that we identified early on are still those that we share today. So, and I'm not going to grill you anymore because I know it feels like a grilling, but I'm really trying to get out of you something that's important for our listeners. And for those listeners who are, you know, who are thinking about what do I do from here and what sort of opportunities are, are, mm. are around for me, you might want to consider the way Tim went about this, but he was smart enough to recognize his skills. He was smart enough to recognize his experiences. He was smart enough to recognize there was an opportunity there with uh, Park Run. Um, and he was smart enough to actually build a pitch, pitch, not in a document, but with, it doesn't matter how he did it, he did it. That actually resonated with the individual. Um, and I guess there was lots of follow-ups and lots of, once you know your, this, what's in front of you, then you know how to follow it up. That makes it much more interesting, much much easier to do. So if you're somebody out there who's got a good idea and you recognize an opportunity and you have all the skill base and all the characteristics that fit that opportunity, then don't feel scared to go out there and pitch yourself to somebody. It might not work, but you've got nothing to lose. And by the way, you'll gain something because you'll learn how to pitch, you'll learn how to, art- how to articulate, even if you don't succeed with that particular individual you're pitching to, it doesn't really matter. Um, here's an example, what Tim has done that's actually landed him in exactly where he wanted to go. And he, he went through it through the right process. Every step he took seems to me to be right. And then he didn't make too much commitment. So he was able then to sort of, get, he gave himself some wriggle room too, which is important to get a bit of wriggle room so you can, wriggle around a little bit and go that, to the right or left as the other person goes to the right or left. You've got to be able to sort of go with them. And it's a real art. And that, but to be frank with you, there's art as well as science. There's art and science involved in pitching your position to whoever it is you're trying to team up with. Tim, I, I think it's, I, I won't go much more about that, but I do want to ask you a few things. So in terms of park run, um, how do people get their times? Is it, how do you time people? Yeah, right. So, so when you register for Parkrun, you yep. do so on our website yep. and we'll send you uh, a barcode. Right. Now that barcode is your, your identifier. Where, you, where do you put the barcode? So you print, well, you can print it out on a piece of paper yep. or as you can see on my wrist here, I've yep. got mine on a, on a wristband. Yep. Um, so you bring that with you to Parkrun in whatever format, um, printed format that you, that you have it. Yep. Um, everyone then starts, you know, walks to the start line. Yep. And we say, ready, go. Yep. And off you go. And we've got a volunteer. We, everything's done through, through an app where we, we have an app that we've developed called the Virtual Volunteer. You'll have uh, one person holding the, the app who's doing the stopwatch and one person who holds uh, an app, the, the app, same app, and it's a scanner. Right. Um, so everyone starts on zero, off you go. And then when uh, an individual finishes at Parkrun, you're handed a finish token, which says your position. So it'll say, you know, P001. 
for example. You then walk to the volunteer who's got the scanner and you get your, uh, your athlete identifier yep. scanned and then your position scanned. Uh, and then our software at the end of the day brings the two files together. It brings the timer file and the scanner file together and creates a set of results that we then publish. You publish it. Mm. Okay. It's for all to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'll get an, you'll get an email sent to you. They'll say, here's your time. Um, that email has our, it's our hundred percent open rate email because everyone wants to see their time. Uh, and then you, uh, it also gets published on the website and, you know, we've got every park run right back to the first event in Bushy Park in 2004 recorded. And tell me how, how, how well is it? going in Australia. So what's going on? CO, Park Run Australia, what, what's happening? Yeah, well, uh, it's it's going fantastically well. So we've now got 352 locations. So we, we launched the first location in Australia. In Australia. So there's uh, 1,769 around the world last last Saturday. So, um, so I'll tell you the numbers for last Saturday, shall we? So globally, 1,769 events, 287,000 participants. We've got 5.6 million registered globally. Uh, 17,000 people did a park run for the first time last weekend and 54,000 ran a PB. So wow. we've got all the numbers. And in Australia, we've got 352 locations, uh, about 800,000 registered, 50,000 odd participating each weekend. And it's all backed up by a, an army of volunteers. We have about 3,500 volunteers every Saturday. Wow. And so that's a big database. Yeah, it's huge. So what are you doing with the database? Well, we, we protect it. <laughs> that's, that's very important. Sure. And, you know, so, uh, you know, data is everything for us. Yep. Uh, on the outside park runs, the running event, on the inside, it's data. You yeah, know, we, we are a very data-driven organisation. So, what are you doing with it? I mean, what, yeah, what's, so, what's the game? Yeah, so, I mean, we have our commercial partners uh, who, you know, they have a, a degree of ability to communicate with our, with our members. So, in Australia, our commercial partners are uh, Medibank and the Athletes Foot. Um, and so they have a, you know, series of rights as, uh, associated with their partnerships with us. Um, so the, you know, Medibank, for example, will, will um, you know, there's a certain number of times a year, they'll communicate via a Solus email to our members. Um, they, but it's really important with our commercial partners. They don't, it's not, they're not sales heavy, you know, it's mm. about building relationships. And so, you know, Medibank as an example have been fantastic in that they've, you know, in three years of, of being partnered with us, they've probably sent one sales message. The rest of the time, it's about relationship building and brand building, and and really providing information. That's I guess they, they work on nudge theory, so they're just uh, nudging, nudging, nudging exactly. all the time. Exactly, and they got and they got a they got a dedicated database, which is great. But what yeah. I, I mean, as a as a you know, to some extent, you're a scientist because you did science at university, so. I mean, the science associated with the data, yes. what else? I mean, so, yeah, so, so there's the commercial side of it, but then there's really the sort of health impacts and, and insight-driven uh, side of it. So we've got a global academic research board who, uh, who are basically on, on an almost daily basis answering requests from academics around the world who want to actually study our data. Right. Uh, now, very few actually get to a point where they get approved because we get so many requests that really uh, only the best will... will Jude, what do, I think everyone should understand something. So what Tim's talking about here is, for example, I'm mate, let's say I'm a PhD student yes. and I'm studying something in relation to body mechanics or something yep. um, or heat mm -hmm. in the body when you run or whatever. Um, and, uh, and as a PhD student, I need to have a set of... Uh, data data points, in other words, individual people, uh, where I can actually get things measured. Because, and usually I'm doing measurements uh, after I've done a literature review. I need to do the measurements, and as a result of doing the measurements, I need to sort of draw conclusions in relation to my PhD. What is my PhD? It's very hard to find those places where you can do the testing. Exactly. So you're you're saying that in an academic sense, because um, this is great, because it actually not only helps the academic or the, the person get their PhD published to some extent, but it's more importantly, you're hoping the result is that there's something that can help mankind. 
there's something comes out of this. Absolutely. Is that what you're talking about? That's exactly what I'm right. talking about. And and look, the, the, most of the research that gets through is less, I guess, on the sport focus. You know, you're talking about body heat and mechanics. It's more about social impact. So we're looking, okay. to, we're looking to see how does parkrun make people feel and, and what does that do to them outside of parkrun? So are, are they becoming happier and healthier? You know, yeah. our, our, the, the mission of parkrun is to help create a healthier and a happier planet. So it's less so, about um, medicine. It's more about uh, health sciences and it's, it's around things like uh, um, psycho- psychological, f- the feeling, the emotions. Yeah. And, ab- and that's, that falls straight into the community piece that yeah, you yeah, talked yeah, about, yeah. building communities. That's fantastic. I love it. I, I think it's, I love anything to do with data and I love it when <laughs> you get data that no one else ever get their hands on because that's yeah. massive. Yes. There wouldn't be a hospital in the country that gets that sort of, would have access to those numbers, that sort of data. Um, and I, I presume you have to get, a, I, do, do you have to, um, there is a, a lot around the ethics of what you do with data, mm-hmm. um, particularly when it comes to medical stuff. Um, do, do you have to get uh, ethics approvals to get access to the data? So, so if you are a researcher coming to us, yep. then yes. Yeah, you you, you, yeah, you, the researcher yeah. must. Yeah, the researcher must. So does that mean uh, you we, get we consent? Don't, so, so we don't give out personal data. So, right. so we okay, don't give yeah, out yeah. anyone's name. Yeah, right, right, um, right. But we'll, we, we can say that, um, you know, X percentage of our participants are in certain, you know, the yeah. dem- demographic data, basically. Do you go back and ask questions of, the, of your participants? Yeah, so uh, we've just actually completed in the UK uh, like a health and happiness survey. It's the first time we've ever gone out to the entire database or this UK-based database and asked that question. Um, it's had a huge response. I think it's something like 100,000 responses and um, don't quote me on that, even though it's now on the podcast. Uh, but uh, yeah. I don't need to. You just said <laughs> exactly. Um, but we'll so so yeah, we're now moving into this space. I mean, you know, we've built up this data and this trust uh, over, over a period of time, you know, 15 years, Parkrun's been going now and we're only really starting to see the opportunities that, that are now available to us in, in this space, in this sort of health, health and wellness space. And really how, how can the data in Parkrun and Parkrun as an organization support the health systems and the health networks in the country that we operate in. And so we really view ourselves as a community intervention, as a health intervention, you rarely hear us talking about parkrun as being anything to do with sport. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's really about, as I say, the mission is healthier and happier communities, healthier and happier planet. Uh, and so every decision that we make now is really driven by that mission, by that focus. I mean, I mean, a great one for me, and this will be my last question, and I'll give you an opportunity to ask me one, but I, I mean, a great one for me would be, uh, would be to capture um, the data and around health and happiness of children and mm. watch over a period of time, let's just say you set yourself a 10 year period, um, whether or not hanging out in the community, doing a regular run, you know, where you get your, you get your natural high from it, then you sit down and hang out with your family or the people that you like to hang out with in the run, whether that it changes young boys and girls outlook in life. That would be a fantastic one to, to see. I mean, and because studies on kids to me is a, it would be fantastic that those outcomes would be, does athleticism and community-based athleticism, not necessarily competitive, help kids stay happier and healthier? Yeah. And, and look, for my personal driver within Parkrun is all about my children. Mm. Uh, you know, I've got three children, six, five, and two, oh, almost yeah, just two, just turned two the other day, six, five, and two. And what I love uh, about Jack, who's is my oldest, is he, when I started Parkrun, there was no Jack. He was born into Parkrun. Um, he would then be in the, the single running pram with me. Uh, he, he knows nothing different in his life than to be at Parkrun on a Saturday morning. Mm. Um, and that 
park run is normal, being active is normal, being in the community is normal, volunteering is normal. You know, so for him, that's his life. He knows no different. Um, in the UK where we're 15 years old, there'll be 15, you know, teenagers now who, who are in that same position, you know, park run to them is normal. And so the fact that we are normalizing physical activity, we are normalizing volunteering, we are normalizing communities coming together on a Saturday morning for children for me is my biggest driver. And, and, um, you know, when we start getting to the point that park run is 30 years old, 40 years old, we're going to have generations mm. of people who know no different from that. And I think, you know, as I said a minute ago, we're only now starting to see the potential of what that means. And, uh, it's what, it's what really drives me. Well, you probably need run. to sort of compare it to those people who don't do it too. That, that, that's the, the difficulty in a quantitative sense or in an analytical sense is you, you all got the positive data. You need to get the, it needs to be relative to the negative data, mm. which is that's, that part's a bit hard, but I heard a very interesting, interesting discussion this morning, very early this morning, um, uh, about um, addiction processes that have uh, the people with the kids with um, you know iPads etc playing games or, or gaming on um, on um, smart devices and uh, this it seems to be the uh, the antithesis to what you're talking about because they're 24 hours seven days a week on these machines and it's not their fault but they're addicted to these things interventions it's nearly like what you're talking about which to me is normal um, nearly needs to be the intervention. Um, yep. to Completely break the agree. cycle. Um, yeah. But it's going to be interesting. I mean, what you're doing is brilliant. It's really interesting. Um, apart from, you know, a fact to provide to a living and, you know, all those sorts of things, the, the commerce of it's sort of not that interesting to me, to be honest with you. It's more the, the other stuff you're just talking about, yep. but it's, it's a, it's a, a great social enterprise. Um, really is a great social enterprise and it must be very rewarding for you in terms of seeing real heavy duty data about how you can change lives, particularly given the way things are going. What I, what I always do is get, because we're going to run short time like as usual, but yeah. what I'd like to do is give you the opportunity to ask me one question if you've got any question for me, because I've been doing all the questioning here. <laughs> no, I do. And I've been, I've been thinking about this and it's interesting because I'm sure you've seen yesterday, um, Jack Ma from, uh, you know, from Alibaba has come out saying that he believes in the, uh, the 72 hour work week, uh, you know, working six days a week, nine till nine. And with, with Parkrun and, and, and with our staff here is I'm, I'm, I always go the other way and I always say to them, we need to be like Denmark, which is, you know, the 32 hour work week and, you know, working happy, working efficiently. And I guess I wanted to, to ask you about that. You know, where, where do you stand on that? Like, I think I'll say that you would strike me as a, someone who yourself probably has a 72 hour work week, but how, how do you, how do you deal with, I guess, employee wellness and stuff for your, for your staff and, and, and how do you, how do you see that? Uh, it's of course, of course. So I don't impose my style on anybody in my business. So I just expect them to get the job done. Yep. Whatever the job is that they've been allocated, whatever they've agreed to do, get the job done. Um, and don't, don't, don't give me an excuse about, I don't have enough time. I don't give a shit about all that. Mm. If you've agreed to do a job, get the job done. If you can't get the job done, then don't agree to do it. Mm. Um, in my case, so I'm running a business, I'm establishing businesses. So um, I feel as though I need to be around those and my business environments for the amount of hours I spend. Sometimes it's more than 72 hours because I'm mean, going to pretty much live my business in my life every day, yep. all day, every day, every day, Christmas, Easter, what doesn't matter what day it is. So, um, I don't think, I don't think Jack Ma to put it in context is talking about, uh, life balance. I don't think he's talking about that. I, I think what he is saying is if you want to establish and run a business like he has, which by the way is a phenomenon, what he's done, mm then you have to be, you ha there's an expectation that you have to be able to spend those amount of hours. Mm. 
if you're working, if you don't want to do that, not everyone wants to do that. If and, and like and by the way, Denmark's a bit bit of a, a socialist sort of environment over there, um, which is fine. It works. A small country that does work. That that works in a in a small geographically small place. Um, but if you want to, but if you're in China, you know, like where there's you know 1.5 billion billion people, and you want to sort of elevate yourself beyond that, and you want to tap into that audience, then you do need to spend 72 hours yeah. because it's just time just just gets away from you. Yeah. So for me, I do it because that's my style, my personality. I don't expect it of anybody else. What I'd take the view is everybody could just should choose first how they want to live their life, then choose the job that goes with it. Um, don't choose a job and try and impose, um, don't choose a job and then try to impose your lifestyle on top of that job. In other words, don't say, go into a job and say, well, you know, um, I haven't done the stuff because, um, you know, it's only 40 hour working week and I just couldn't get there. I didn't have time to get the work done. Mm. To me, that's just bullshit. Um, just fuck off from the job, give it to someone else who wants to do it mm. and go find yourself a job where it only requires 40 hours week working or whatever the case may be. And then that's fine too. So for me, it's about everybody finding their own balance, what suits them best. Um, but we do need to be productive in the world today because you won't get growth outside of product, more productivity. So there's no more natural growth anywhere. It's, just, it's going to come from being more productive. And to be more productive, it just means you've got to spend more hours or, or more productive hours yeah. um, and working smarter and harder. And someone needs to lead that. So the Jack Mars of the world, um, he's an enigma, but lots of people want to copy him because they feel as though they want to try and achieve what he achieves, and that motivates some people. On the flip side of it, the majority of the people in this world, they want to go to work, they want to come home at night, they want to forget about what they did at work, they want to spend time with their family, they want to develop, you know, they want to have barbecues, they want to go for runs at park runs, they, they have just a different objective in their life. Mm. And I would say to those people, I respect that as much as anybody, but make sure that you choose the job that suits that lifestyle. Mm. Otherwise you're going to have massive frustration, frustration. And all you're going to do is let down the environment that you work for. Um, because people are going to expect you to do something. So for me, I have both. I have people who work for me and I have a lot of people who work for me. I have people who do the 40 hour a week and they do the job and I'm happy and they get paid accordingly. I have other people who uh, expect to only have to do 40 hours or 35 hours, and but they never get the job done. For me, they're work, walking the, the plank mm. the moment I find out about it. And then I've got those who work way beyond those hours and I reward them and uh, they also feel self-rewarded because they're achieving a whole lot of stuff because that's what drives them. Mm. So uh, I guess uh, I, I would stratify, but not not – not longitudinally, but latitudinally. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't put anyone above the other. I put them all in a, all in the same latitude, just different parts of the world. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for coming. That was fantastic. I loved it. Uh, and good luck to you in Park Run and uh, that data. I'll, I'd like to see you in twenty years' time when you're much <laughs> older, and you're going to have so much information on what, how, how this all works and how it is, works for the betterment of society. Yeah, it was really exciting times ahead for us. So thanks, oh, absolutely thanks awesome. for having me on today. You Mark. know, what's, what's cool now too, by the way, is you didn't have this 20 years ago, but 
Now you've got the the means and the tools to do this data analysis. Of course, yeah. You never had that before. No, no. This the, is a new phenomenon. The technology behind it is, yeah, it, it could only have happened in this era in which we live. So it's uh, it's fantastic. It's amazing. All the best to you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Mark. 